magicians, wizards, apparitions, adult language, and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not enter the house of mystery. All right, then. On with the show. All right, hello. Welcome, everyone, to the house of mystery, the John Constantine and Friends podcast. Hello, welcome. If you're new to this show, we cover all things John Constantine and related. You can find all of our shows past, present, and in the future on iTunes and Spotify and pretty much wherever else you choose to listen to podcasts. But Spotify and iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I should say, those two places are our preferred feeds. Hello, David. How are you? How's it going? Okay, so we have convened to discuss, or I should say we're going to continue Let me do a better introduction. We plan to discuss and analyze Hellblazer number five. Yes. So we have returned to the original Vertigo run, and we'll be discussing the issue titled When Johnny Comes Marching Home, originally published in May 1988. In this issue, writer Jamie Delano places John Constantine in the observer role which makes for an interesting and unique narrative. Yes. I will say, David, that I actually did not remember this story at all. A lot of people, a lot of people that read Hellblazer don't remember this story, but the best thing by far, I always tell you a lot of times we don't remember the things that we just don't want to remember. It's an uncomfortable read. And yes, this, this issue is a very uncomfortable read, but it's, I think it's one of my mind blocked it out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because like a lot of people, when I remind them about this, they're like, Oh my God. Yeah. This was the, this was a story that basically stuck with them as, uh, as a lot of people would say. And in a lot of ways, when you look back historically with, comic book writing in general, 1988, what Jamie Delano did in this story was very controversial for comic books. Yeah. Oh, I'm because sure. this was, you got to remember in 1988 comic books were seen as like kid friendly media and stories were supposed to be, yeah, have a moral, but Oh, there's a moral here. <laughs> yeah. But the moral would be done in a very yeah, kid friendly way. Yeah. Jamie Delano, especially when Hellblazer started, was doing very experimental things with storytelling to kind of make comic books not, well, more mass audience friendly, not just for kids, but for also for adults. Yeah. I like the word you use, experimental, because I do feel like maybe perhaps in today's environment, we have tried so hard with different ideas when it comes to narrative form. But early on, if you look at 1988, as you mentioned, most people are are used to viewing comics at this specific time very differently as we view them today. There's a more mature readership that follows comic books than, say, in the 80s. But... Delano was experimenting with narrative form. The, the whole temporal ghosts and the, <laughs> the parallel narratives was very yes. creative and very different for comic books. Even for someone like myself, David, like I said, I didn't really remember this particular story. And I've read a lot of comic books 
And even, you know, 2023 here reading this issue, I found this narrative very interesting. The way he chose to write this specific story. Mm -hmm. He plays Delano, plays with the evolving concept of an outside observer who becomes a witness to stringent and dangerous dogmatism. Yes. A theme that used the previous issue as a jumping off point with the Resurrection Crusade's involvement, mm -hmm. which by the end of the issue, we realize are becoming a serious threat. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're becoming a almost background threat for Constantine, where Constantine now has to take full, you know, responsibility of, okay, he has to take this case to figure out what the hell they're doing. Yeah, well, because isn't that the reason why he even got roped into this little Iowa farm town was because he was actually in America for Swamp Thing. Yes. I believe that was a little bit that was slipped in at some point. Yeah, in the very but beginning. But he got drawn to this city because of, or this town, because of the Resurrection Crusade. Yes, because like it's, it, and it all started from the first small minor case he had, I think in issue issue four four with his family yeah, yeah. With, where they're talking about it over in england and suddenly he's here in america because the case leads him leads him here and it leads into a bigger a bigger scope than like this very in the very beginning with the uh resurrection crusaders in issue number four it was a personal story for constantine correct yeah this one he gets to see like okay there's more than just my family being affected, the world is being affected. By the this. scope is much larger. The scope is much larger. Yeah. And the thing that I thought uh, I loved about this story, going back and rereading it, is like Delano basically decides to show that grand scope by bringing in very, very questionable, you know, topics. In his story. I mean, normally a, a writer would say, I'm going to stick with one controversial topic. Questionable like, or difficult? Difficult. Let's Dif say yeah. difficult. But like difficult content, whether it is war, veterans, the story about veterans, the story about racism. You always would see a writer just tackle one thing. Here, he tackles multiple. He does, he does you know, a little uh, racism, does about a statement about war, a statement of how we treat veterans, rape <laughs> toward the end. And it's like, it's like, wow, he's really throwing everything at the wall and it, it kind of works. But it's all coherent. It's coherent. It all cohesively gels together because as far as, you know, thematic and narrative strategy goes, everything you were mentioning, you know, Delano blends the elements of war time displacement, which I thought was, was very yeah. creative and metaphysical themes. And by doing so, ultimately he explores the consequences of war, guilt, and the interconnectedness of trauma and those who would take advantage of those suffering yes. from psychological impairments. And tying that to the zealots of religion, the idea, the idea of basically religion religious zealots destroying the world essentially yeah and you have the more overt theme which is that right uh tele evangelism yep but also the implications of war specifically vietnam and the culture of war which is something that a lot of people 
have written so much on now because the Vietnam War to this day, there really isn't a war. It's the most unique war in modern history, the Vietnam War, for a lot of reasons. And I don't want to get into a discussion on the Vietnam War. However, we do need to wade into that territory a bit in order Just to bit. fully analyze the culture of war that the Vietnam War created had a lot to do with the fact that we stayed there. When I say we, I mean the United States stayed there far too long. Yeah. When you are in one place far too long for years on end, you lose your connection to what life is really supposed to be like. Humanity in your, the safety of your home. When your life becomes fear and hiding in bushes and then popping out and killing people, not knowing whether or not they're your enemy, but they might have a gun, they might have a grenade. It continually weighs heavy on the human psyche. Oh, yeah. And what happens is you end up either A, falling and becoming crushed by that, or you find a way to embrace it. And by embracing it, you then prop up the culture of war. You are now a product of that war and you act in a suitable manner. When I say suitable, I'm not talking about suitable in the sense of morality, but you act how your environment has created you. Yes. And that's the, that's the really interesting thing I really found going back and rereading this story. This story that was made in 1988, right? What Delano is using is saying here in this narrative could easily be transferred to today's world. And it's like, when you look at like how the idea of war takes away your own humanity, that's what ends up happening to these soldiers. That's what in the beginning of this story, we kind of get the gist that basically a lot of those soldiers in Vietnam, because of like what they, like what you said, they stayed in the jungle for so long and they were in that war for far too long and it destroyed some of their own humanity. When I talk about the culture of war, there's one movie in particular that a lot of vets say reluctantly that really captures the culture of war. Now, it doesn't capture all the nuances and the horrors of war, but it captures the culture of war. And it's uh, Francis Coppola's picture. Apocalypse Now is a perfect example, or it embodies my definition when I say the culture of war. Yeah. When you have been in the jungle for so long and your entire goal, your aims, your telos is to put an end to fellow human beings, how do you hold on to you, your humanity? You mm -hmm. don't. You, you don't. can't. You can't. And that's the th that's, that is one of the things that, as funny as it sounds, even by today's standards, no one wants to really talk about. They want to, just like you say, they want to glamorize the, the culture of war. Especially Vietnam, because in retrospect, I don't think there's a single person that would raise their hand and say, yeah, we should have been there. That was a great war. Yeah. Almost everybody, even proponents of the war at that time, will now say retrospectively, we had no business being there. We had no there. business there being there that long. So <laughs> then how do you as a soldier and the family of those soldiers who were, who were killed, how do you reconcile? How do you justify? How do you get back? From that, how do you go, go back to uh, society yeah. in general? And it's like, well, and how do you justify your actions? When you're a soldier thinking you're fighting a righteous war and you realize the whole thing's a fucking sham. Exactly. 
And then that's why I thought it was really cool about seeing the parallel of it. The, the parallel in this story that Delano used was showing the times that uh, the soldier was having quote unquote flashbacks and he was reliving his past. But then you just, uh, you parallel that with what he's doing at that moment for reality and how horrible it is mm-hmm. because you're seeing it through Constantine's eyes. And an observer, yeah, as an observer, is horrified what the guy is doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such a powerful message because it shows you that the average person really doesn't know, at least at that time. Now we're more tapped in. We know what's happening. A war will probably never be as. Oh, that's quite the statement. War will always be bloody, but. There are a lot of things that people got away with in war because nobody was watching. Now everyone's watching because of technology. And that's why having an observer role in this particular issue and that being Constantine and by default being the reader, it was a great way to show these effects of war to a so-called outsider. Yeah. Now there are a lot of very intriguing strategy strategies utilized in writing in the writing of this issue the idea of non-involvement or in john constantine's case being placed as an observer who was unable to intervene and that's a powerful metaphor for wartime existentialism yes i'm speaking about the role that most of us play during war we are observers witnesses we do not have the power nor agency to intervene. In most cases, we are left on the sidelines disgusted, mortified, angry, and that is all we can do, feel. Yes. We are left powerless. That is why the role Constantine assumed in this issue was so powerful because it's our role. Most of us are the observer. Yes. We see it, but we're powerless to intervene. Most of us work a nine to five. We have mouths to feed. How do we intervene in the atrocities we see? We do not have that power. And that's why this issue to me is so strong in its messaging because it places mm-hmm. us, it, that metaphor places us and it highlights what it means to be someone watching something that we have no ability to prevent really. And the horrors of it, because like one of my favorite, probably the one of the most climactic moments in this comic that just epitomizes what you just are saying is on page 18 of the entire story where you have that final confrontation between Nancy and Frank. And Frank is in the middle of his strange, you know, PTSD moment or whether you want to say it's a match uh, uh, a curse moment done by the religious crusaders but he's having that moment when Nancy's about to shoot him and he's having that that memory of basically the uh shooting the 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 one woman that he apparently raped in yeah. it, back in Vietnam and then it ends with Constantine just being just having to sit in the cornfield and just listen to the gunshots and, and has no power has to act. no power to act and like he's like saying oh god that could have been me and he's like stuck in the cornfield 
while that happens. He couldn't save either of them. Now, David, that whole scene that you mentioned is a little ambiguous as to being powerless or choosing to be powerless. And I think that's the point. I think Delano is playing with those notions purposely. And the idea of it being ambiguous, does John Constantine have the power to intervene or is he choosing not to intervene? Now, myself as a reader, understanding Constantine as a character would say that he is powerless, that there's something preventing him. In fact, I believe in the comic book, there are allusions, there are certain key words that allude to the fact that he is in fact unable to. To intervene, what do you call it? American magic? Something stopping him? Now, it was a little vague because I think Delano was purposely trying to play with this idea of choosing to be powerless or truly and in fact being powerless, which is very common. Those two notions, the duality of the two Mm -hmm. is a common point of discussion when it comes to war. Yes. I mean, it was something that was voiced amongst many of the anti-Vietnam activists during oh. during the war. Yeah, it was one of the biggest things that they would always talk about. But there's more going on than that. Typically, as far as literature goes, uh, stories that explore these types of themes with an observer who cannot or will not intervene or interfere often fall under the genre of metaphysical fiction or philosophical fiction. And they are often used to touch on concepts like determinism, free will, morality, and the nature of existence. And if I were to spend the next, let's say two weeks working on a formal essay on issue five, I would probably find all four. All five, determinism, free will, morality, and the nature of existence. I would probably be able to find all of it within Delano's narrative. Oh, easily. And that's what makes this really different. Back in, when you think about like in 1988, comic books back then, the way that stories were written in comics, you would never see something like this ever tackled because that is something very heavy for a reader to take. There were some. I there were some, never. but They're, very rare. It was oh, very extreme. rare back yeah. back back in 1988. Mm-hmm. In today's standards, no. There's a lot of people that try to uh, to to do this type of writing, but it's because of this because of what writers like Delano, who are the earlier writers in in comic books. Yeah, they set the standard where it's basically no, you can write stories like this for comics. There's a few cut from the same cloth. Gaiman was one, I Gaiman believe, early one. on. Alan Moore was another. Alan Moore, who's the gentleman, or actually he's non-binary, I believe. Um, the individual that did the, I always forget his name, Grant Morrison. Grant Morrison, yep. Or even Morrison. Like those, those writers brought like this new way of thinking in the, around the 80s where it was, Comics should be more than just superhero comes in, saves the day, flies off into the sunset. Because that's what it, normally comic books were. Right. Comic books were basically the the cape would just come in, beat up the villain, do the, his moral speech, and then leave. The, the comic that, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of comic readers out there that have very strong opinions against what I'm about to say, but... Through my study of comics, 
the particular story and author that mainstreamed more serious stories mainstreamed was Frank Miller with, yeah. with the dark Knight. No, 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 absolutely. I mean like whether you he like, mainstreamed it, he, he wasn't the he only one doing it, but he's the one that managed to connect this style mm -hmm. with the mainstream whether successfully. Whether you are a proponent of Frank Miller's or a fan of Frank Miller's, it's if the dark night, right? That's, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. dark night. Yeah. And when you look at comic book history, for those that want to look into comic book history, ha can't deny that basically Frank Miller was the kind of like the touchstone. That's the touchstone moment for mass yeah, uh, mass okay. audiences. Where that's a good way to put it. You have a writer literally cross the bridge of mainstream comics and I want to say like artistic writing. Yeah. Because if you look at Frank Miller's run during more, that time, more intellectual endeavors, more intellectual endeavors. Yeah. yeah. Because like during that time he, he releases dark Knight, and then he goes to sin city and that, and sin city itself brought in that whole genre of, of writing like the the writing we see in in uh hellblazer film noir detective type of storytelling i'm a sucker for sin city yeah sin city i love sin city i love the way that sin city is written yeah and it's like when you take a look at that it's without these moments without miller's run without delano's run in hellblazer we don't have like the touch the 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 storytelling we have with a lot of writers today like yeah. a spurrier like even, even, you know, we, we might talk shit about him in other shows, even with like, say like a Tom Taylor, mm -hmm. Taylor has his moments. Yeah, absolutely. he can do it, but without the predecessors, without these moments, we'll never have those, those writers. Yeah. And that's what I really liked about, it was interesting that we, when you, we opened up the show and you said, I don't remember this story. <laughs> Many people don't believe me. You're not the only one, but there's so much to say about why people don't remember. Is it because of the writing style of Delano's where he was like going, I'm going to chuck everything I can at this because I want to tell this story and get my point across, but I'm going to do multiple things and things that people have never seen before. And it's going to make them uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and essentially, when I look back at like Hellblazer, this is one of the stories I look back and I say, this is a great comic to look back at and see how a comic book can psychologically affect a person because you're not the only one to ever say that it's this reading this book was uncomfortable because I have run into so many friends that we talk about and they're like going, even to this day, this story is probably the most uncomfortable. I think a lot of people at this time were probably a little burnt out on the Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, I believe the war had already been, what, 13 years since the war had ended at this point. 1988 is when this issue premiered. What the fall of Saigon was, what, 1975? I think. So about 19, yeah, so 1975 sounds about right. So, when you think about it, this feels a little bit about because we know Delano is uh, he loves social commentary. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's pushing back on what a lot of people were trying to do with the war in the aftermath, which was to idealize it yeah. because 
the fall of Saigon is an image that is forever burnt into the American psyche because it was the first, well, it, it isn't the first, but it is recognized as the first war that America truly lost. Well, that's the thing I really liked about that. You hit it on the head because like, if you look at the last panel, uh, last statement of Delano's where normally with this type of storytelling, the last few pages are where you're trying to get your point across. And it ends with Constantine walking across a video store and it's it, it, the, in the windows. It says films that show how it really was. And you see platoon hamburger Hill full mail jacket. And which one's not there. Exactly. Because that's a Francis Coppola's picture is an anti-war film. Is an anti-war film. Whereas Platoon and Hamburger Hill are pro-American, pro-war pictures. Oh, and it's full metal jacket? Was was pro Marines. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm not taking sides here. I'm not saying one is wrong, one view, but my point is from a view of social commentary, Delano was pushing back on what the Americans were doing during the Reagan administration. There you go. Which yes. was idealizing and romanticizing the war. Yes. Because it was a state of prior to Reagan, it, America was a bit in an existential funk because of the failure of that war and how many people had died and how, you know, certain things were revealed that we just, we shouldn't have been there. It was a bit of a scam. So you had a lot of studios pumping out. I don't want to call it propaganda because it isn't. I'm sure other countries that don't like us would call it that. I don't believe it's propaganda, but it is capturing an American fiction. It isn't reality. It's an American fiction. It's it's the myth of war. That's what Platoon does. Yeah. So when you have someone like Jamie Delano, who was probably in the midst of all of this um, pro, let's just call it propaganda for the sake of argument for this discussion, he's being surrounded by American propaganda where they're trying to rewrite history mm-hmm. in a lot of ways that this is a war. Let's, let's rally behind the American flag. Well, listen, Vietnam was a, was a catastrophe. It was a fiasco. Yeah. No matter how you look at it. And that's in a lot of ways, what that last panel was about. If you didn't understand what I was trying to say, I'm pushing back on this platoon nonsense. Yes. And then the best thing by far, you know, Delano could have left it right there. But instead, he does it in his own special way to make sure that it still stays a Hellblazer John Constantine comic by having that satirical moment when Constantine's walking away, sees the guy in the chair, and then he, well, the, it made me chuckle again when I actually looked at, when I look at it now is when he says, I flash him the peace sign, then feel stupid because he's got no way to return it. <laughs> I turn my back and I walk away and that's John Constantine yeah, because it's like, also like Ryan Seacrest trying to give a high five to a blind man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's like, it, it, it's, it's Delano's way of showing the, how fucked up the world is mm-hmm. when even if, even with all these atrocities, Constantine himself is still a flawed individual, but he's still trying to be quote unquote nice. And even if he is a flawed individual, he still makes that attempt to be nice. That is the way you perfectly end a story so that you don't feel like your story is ending on a soapbox, right? Because it comes back to the story. It comes back to the character that, that is your lead, essentially. 
And it just helps galvanize this feeling that John Constantine is this normal, as normal as you can get average Joe. He is not a cape. He's just this guy that's basically trying to find out this case, try to solve the mystery. That's it. And that's why I really liked how Delano, when you really take a look at his narrative beats, he really played the play plays with the audience really well to leave the audience in the end, not too put off by the story because he still, you know, is able to make it feel like this is yeah. a hellblazer comic. This is what's sorely missing in today's exactly. environment, whether it be movies, television, comic books, you know, if this were to be handled by a hack, this type of content in today's environment, it would be considered woke. It would in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I hate the whole woke nonsense. The terminology, the word that's used is thrown around way too much. Anytime someone doesn't like something that's being said ideologically, oh, that's woke. That's woke nonsense. No, you just don't understand what's being said. Yeah. Now, I will say there's a lot of hacks handling things that probably shouldn't. And that's why it comes off as so-called woke. But this is what's sorely missing. Real intellectualized social commentary on things that matter in this world. Yeah. And that's think, what's missing here. And think about it, Mike. This was written back 1988. Yeah. 88. The narrative style also, David, and we have already touched on this a bit. Um, it also was a way to explore the post-war trauma among vets. Yeah. This idea that just because the war is over doesn't mean the effects of war are at an end. The temporal shenanigans with the resurrection crusade praying for the return of the soldiers from Vietnam and Frank Ross reliving the horrors he witnessed as well as the atrocities he committed was actually a very smart way for Delano to capture the notion that many of these returning soldiers never really return psychologically speaking the trauma they experience keeps them firmly in the past, unable to move on. The war is never over. They are reliving it. That's why this temporal aspect where you have this parallel narrative, we have the, the power of prayer bringing back the ghost soldiers, right? And you then merge the fact that Frank Ross is reliving his past. Yeah. That he has nightmares. And then it all merges together as one. It's essentially saying that this man has never come home. Yes. He's reliving his horrors. For him, he is still in the jungle. Yeah, and that's his curse. Yeah. You know, because he lost his humanity in the jungle, that's where his humanity stayed. And yeah. he's forever trapped there. Yeah, it's it's becoming harder and harder to find people now that time, so much time has passed since the ending of the Vietnam War to find individuals from that war. But growing up, because I was born in 1979, growing mm -hmm. up, you know, when I used to go to church years ago, there were people that were trying to cope still from the yeah. Vietnam War in the late 80s, and they refused to talk about it. Oh, yeah, they it's, don't want to talk about it because it's just too horrible. It's, it's, a, it's an ongoing truth if you were to actually study into a lot of war culture, especially, you know, like, I love... War history. I love looking back at World War One, World War Two, uh, doing a lot of that studying about 
human history. And the, one of the most interesting factors is like any soldier, it doesn't matter what, what generation or what war, they never want to talk about what they did in war. They never do. Even in, by today's standards, if you ask, uh, if you ask a lot of uh, veterans that have come from the Middle East and stuff and Desert Storm, they don't want to talk about it. It, and it's very taboo to actually ask them, oh, what did you do there? Or uh, is there something going on? You never do that because it's a very taboo subject to, to, to broach onto someone. And I liked one of the, when I was, when I first read this story back, I remember back in 1988, around probably when I got into Hellblazer, I got, it was probably in the early nineties. And I remember reading this story and I basically took away from it, you know, the whole idea of the Vietnam War was terrible. And then as I got older and <laughs> now that I, I reread this just probably about a month ago uh, just to cover for the show, it's interesting to me that basically looking back and seeing a lot of like the more, I want to say mature elements come out more as it's aged. Like, like what you said. Is There's like, just things that you don't always pick up you on don't pick up when on. you're younger because you do need to know a little bit about history. Mm -hmm. You need to have read some literature to really understand what's being said. If I were to give this comic book to my kid, he, he's not going to really he's not gonna understand know. It. He's going to, obviously there's certain things. If you have a brain, you can be able to put together a message, right? Mm -hmm. And what this trying to say, but you're not going to get all that nuance there because that comes with experience and, mm -hmm. and living. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And basically like when you get to now that after I read it, it's amazing to me that basically the story of Frank parallels a lot of veterans that I know where they, they've done things that they don't want to talk about and nor, nor do they. And when they have their, what, what they call episodes or PTSD episodes, it is very reminiscent of like what Frank does where he gets really quiet and he doesn't want to talk to, he almost like the veterans just lose themselves in that moment and they just disappear. And then I'm like, looking at this story, I'm like going, how did Delano capture that? Back in 1988, he probably has someone that he knew closely. You'd think. Yeah, that was in the war, I'm sure. I'm sure if we were to do some research, we could figure that out. So we also had the intervention versus non-intervention that we had mentioned a few moments ago. But setting that aside, the ethical considerations, the psychological traumas, Delano was also placing the televangelists in his crosshairs. <laughs> yes. And rightly so. When analyzing Hellblazer stories, remembering or researching the context of the time, which is kind of what we were just saying a few moments ago, is vital to understanding much of the social commentary. Delano was taking shots at the manipulative actions of televangelists and the way they prayed and still prey on many of their followers. The 1980s marked specifically a significant period for television evangelism with the emergence of high-profile televangelists like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. Their ministries gained immense popularity and amassed considerable financial resources. And 
almost all of these people faced controversies. In 1988, prominent televangelist Jimmy Swaggart was involved in a highly publicized scandal when it was revealed that he had been consorting with a prostitute. Yep. Jim Baker, in the late 80s, along with his wife, Tammy Baker, faced a high-profile scandal related to financial mismanagement and allegations of sexual misconduct. It's a field of predators in a lot of ways. It is. And it's one of those things that, even by today's standards, you have to be careful what you say, because there are people out there that do follow evangelism. I feel sorry for them, and I'm not ashamed to say that. If you're listening to a guy on TV telling you to donate money, because by donating money, you will secure yourself uh, an afterlife in heaven, you, you probably need to quit reading from the fairy tale section of the library and probably start finding something to read in the reference section. That's not a denouncement or, or criticism of religion. I'm a proponent of religion. I think religion can give people a wonderful foundation in life that many of us no longer have. So I'm not against religion. I'm against people who use religion to prey on Believers. There you go. Yeah, that's the biggest thing, especially like when you take a look at the when you take a look at the town that Constantine found himself in. They're not really bad people. They're people that have to cope with the fact that their loved ones are missing, missing in action. Uh, they yeah. were they were they they want their children to come home. They're right? real people dealing with real problems. Real problems that have no answers. The problem was you have people like. The religious crusaders who you could say like basically like evangelists, evangelists during those times. That's exactly who they were modeled after. That's why they were on TV asking for prayers and support. Prayers and support. And they're preying on people's, people's despair. You know, they were just simply preying on those people's weaknesses. Yeah. And that's what I agree with you. Religion can be a fantastic weapon. It can be a really great thing for community. But in the wrong hands, it could be flipped. Well, look at this this guy, Kenneth. You want to talk about a recent period of time. This, this shit still happens. Just in 2015, you had Kenneth Copland, I want to say. He, he's a televangelist, and he had acquired a Gulfstream private jet. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That's Do you right. remember yes. that? And the meme and, was, I needed, I, I, you need to give me money so God can give me a jet. Yes, and the controversy arose not only because of the substantial cost of the jet, but also because Copeland had defended his need for a private air travel, stating that flying commercial would expose him to demons. Demons. <laughs> and that he needed the private jet to better serve the Lord. And see, and people fell for it, Mike. That's why I feel sorry for these people, because there's a, a bit of naivety there. A little bit, but also there's a certain amount of accountability. <laughs> responsibility <laughs> that you have to take as well. But the, the it's just these people are monsters. People like yeah. Kenneth Copeland and... Baker and Swagger, the people that Delana was going after in this issue, they're monsters. They're monsters. They're monsters that prey on the weak. Yes. And, you know, prey on the, 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 the loyalty of people. 
Yeah. And that's the, that's the most disgusting thing any human can do. And n- not to get overly preachy, the reason why it bothers me so much is because I do respect religion and religion is so sacred and personal to a lot of people. And when you have individuals like these televangelists who pray on something as personal as someone's belief to only better themselves financially, I mean, there is, if I believed in hell, there would be a very <laughs> be special, special place, place in hell for these people who are allegedly speakers of the Lord. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So lastly, Constantine mentions he's in the States only to check on Swamp Thing. Which is awesome. So that may be a little preview that we're going to be seeing some Swamp Thing very soon, right? Yes. The art by John Ridgway is absolutely amazing. Is he alive and is he still working? Do you know? John Ridgway? I... You know what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if Ridgeway actually is still around and still doing work. I love his work, Dave. Oh, his his work is very influential when it comes to uh, late 80s uh, comic book uh, art. Because a lot of people basically, he was doing a lot of the issues that many, many comic book artists and writers today were influenced by. Uh, he's still alive. 83 years old. I do not believe he's working any longer, though. I mean, I mean, why would you? Eighty years old? Come on, retire. <laughs> retire. Well, enjoy your life. Your watch is done. Your watch is done, sir. <laughs> yeah. So my final thoughts, David. I love the issue. I thought it was really good. Very unique. Yeah. Even in today's environment now, David. After reading, you know, decades of comic books. And you can pick up something from 1988 and you're like, wow, this is still unique. Yeah, it's still unique and relevant. Yeah. So my score for this is 96%. I'm I'm around the same area as you. I would give this a 90, 95% on, uh, on my score just because there is that caveat where I tell people, if you are going to read this, keep in mind that it's going to be a really deep read and it's going to be tackling so many ideas and concepts. It might be a lot, a lot to tackle. I mean, that, that does kind of muddy the water when it comes to comic book, like a comic book narrative. If you try to tackle so many concepts in one issue, you got to make sure that it flows properly. Luckily, you know, Delano so concise Delano made it, made it work because (laughs) Like what you alluded to earlier, his use of basically time skipping, Mm -hmm. the way he uses like that time parallel was genius because he didn't do it as a flashback. He made it seem like it was a, like a magical curse. And as funny as it sounds, this type of writing reminds me of like writing, uh, me and you have talked about off, um, off air about like how, uh, this type of writing kind of reminds me of X-Files. When you see X-Files, it, it does have that really strange... It doesn't have the classic ending. It's a little open-ended. And it's like, you could still treat it as a, as a solo story, though, which is even stranger. So I don't think everything needs resolution yeah. because the reality of life, there very seldom is resolution. Yes. So when you have stories that are reflecting a re- even something like Hellblazer that is supernatural... I guess you can say it still is grounded in a relative reality. 
that we're familiar with. And because of that, you can have these open-ended, open-ended stories because it fits better with our existence. Very few moments in our lives have definitive closure. We slowly just move, we merge, we morph into the next phase of our life. And there's a lot of loose ends yes. that connect to this so-called new chapter in our life. So I have no problems with that as long as you're telling a story from beginning to end with the appropriate beats, you can have resolution in a narrative sense without having a resolution when it comes to the open-ended necessities of an ongoing serialized comic story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening. Please, if you are new to the show, be sure to share this show when you see it pop up on, on X. I believe is what it's called now. <laughs> also, Facebook, Instagram, be sure to pay attention. Give our posts love and attention because it does help our show. Twitter's a bit dead nowadays, but I, I feel like we get the most personal interaction with people. It's not a lot, but we get the most in-depth interactions with, through DMs. I don't know why people don't like talking publicly. Are they ashamed <laughs> See, of talking to us? Are they worried? Please keep slipping me DMs. But, but you can also talk to me publicly as well. That is okay. So thank you, David. Thank you. Cheers, wankers. See you never.